Good to see you here for our Romans study. We are continuing in Romans chapter 6. And I personally have been very convicted by the verses that we have been studying. Um, this isn't just an academic exercise that we're going through here. What we are doing, what we are studying, the words of God that we are studying have the power to change our life. And when the Bible says here in Romans 6 that we really can be dead to sin, that's what it means. It's not a fantasy. It's actually a true saying of God. Before going any further, though, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get into our study. Father in heaven, we thank you we can study the book of Romans this evening. As we study Romans chapter 6 again, and as we study the concept of the servants of God, we pray that you would help us to be your servants and to be dead to sin. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we covered the first 15 verses of chapter 6. And in these 15 verses, the theme that comes forth from these verses are that if we are dead to sin, we do not continue in sin. When we are justified, we are dead to sin. Therefore, if we are justified, we don't continue in sin. And just as Christ was raised from the dead and death has no dominion over him, when we are dead to sin and are raised to walk in newness of life, sin has no more dominion over us, and we don't keep sinning just as Christ doesn't come back to Calvary and die again. He died once and that's it. When we're dead to sin, what Paul is saying is, is you don't need to keep sinning. Of course, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But when you are dead to sin, there is no excuse at that point for continuing in sin. Now, there's a few points <clears throat> I've been thinking all week about the verses that we've studied. And there's a few concepts that I thought about a little bit further. Because what I want to focus in Today, it's verses 16 to 23. Verses 16 to 23 speak of being either servants to God or servants to sin. So you're either going to be one or the other. There's no in-between. You're either a servant of God or you're a servant of sin. And the first 15 verses have developed that thought. And so I was thinking about some of the concepts here in the first 15 verses and how that connects to being a servant of God. And so <clears throat> one of the first things that we see is in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we've, we've been through these verses last week. We see the, in verse 4, verses 3 and 4, that we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death, we're buried with him by baptism into death. And it's interesting, when you go to Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and took upon him the form of a servant. And why don't we turn to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. So, 
We are being asked to be servants of God in the last six, seven, eight verses of Romans chapter 6. But we see in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus also was a servant. Philippians 2, 7 says, But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So notice this. Jesus became a servant by dying on the cross. And in Romans 6, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And by the end of the chapter, Paul says we are servants to God, just as Jesus took upon him the form of a servant. So, again, God is not asking us to do anything that Jesus didn't do when he was here as a human being here on this earth. He was a servant, and we are to be servants to God. How was Jesus a servant? He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, this concept develops even further. In verse 5 it says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, when you plant something, what do you plant? Well, usually it's a seed. Exactly, you plant a seed. So, <clears throat> we are planted in the likeness of his death, which means that Jesus was also planted. You see that? We are planted in the likeness of his death, so is Jesus. Now, is there a place in Scripture that describes Jesus as a seed being planted? John chapter 12, verse 20, starting in verse 23. Mm -hmm. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What's Jesus speaking about there? And this is death on the cross, and you can prove that by going to John 17, where he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. Here, John 12, 23, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And Jesus says how he will be glorified in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So, how was Jesus glorified? He was glorified by dying. And the illustration that he uses, he uses a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And the word that you could use to describe this was this corn of wheat was planted. And in order for this corn of wheat to be planted, it had to die. So Jesus was planted. Going back to Romans 6, we are planted in the likeness of his death. How was Jesus planted? As a corn of wheat who fell into the ground and died. Now, what was the result of that corn of wheat falling into the ground. In verse 24 of John 12, it says, If it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So the corn of wheat is planted in the ground. It's now dead. But because it died, it can now 
bring forth fruit by growing up out of the ground, becoming a plant, and then bearing many seeds of corn on the corn husk. And here's the question. When you plant that seed into the ground, and now it's dead, but then the illustration is it's resurrected because Jesus was resurrected. When it comes up out of the ground, now it says it brings forth much fruit. What do you have on a mature husk of corn? Or whatever it's called. An ear, sorry. An ear of corn. Boy, I'm not a farmer. You can tell. So what do you have on a mature ear of corn? You have kernels of corn. You have kernels of corn. What, are they similar to, or, to the seed that was planted? Yeah, they, they are identical to the seed that died and was planted. Now, here's, here's the interesting point. Jesus died as a corn of wheat, but because he did so, there's the promise of much fruit being brought forth. What is that fruit going to be like? It will be identical to Jesus. And in Romans chapter 6, we are told that we are planted in the likeness of his death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when in verse 4 it says that we walk in newness of life, whose life are we walking after? After Jesus Christ. That means, and it's really hard, I think I rushed too quickly through Romans 6 last week, so I'm slowing down and really just milking out more substance here. So the newness of life means that that life that is new is just like the life of Christ because we've been planted together in the likeness of his death. So Jesus, John chapter 12, is verses 23 and 24, he's the corn of wheat that dies, he's planted in the ground, comes forth and brings forth much fruit. Each of those kernels of corn are just like the seed that was planted. Jesus died. Those who become dead to sin and are raised to walk in newness of life are just like Jesus. And here's the other interesting point. <clears throat> because Jesus is the seed who died and was planted in the ground, and then much fruit is brought forth, the fruit that is brought forth is identical to Jesus. We are planted in the likeness of his death, and we are the fruit of the seed. Now, is the fruit of the seed, again, we've talked about this, is it identical or is it slightly different? It's identical, which suggests, it's, that's biblical evidence to show, that when Jesus was here as a human being, he had the same fallen nature that we have. Because we can be just like him. He was a corn of wheat planted into the ground. He died, but then much fruit is brought forth. And his seed is the seed that we come out of. So if he was different than us, we couldn't come out of his seed. But because we come from his seed, the origin, who is Christ, that would make it that he would be just like us. 
And we've been studying that in the Hebrews class. Hebrews 2 says that he was made in all things like his brethren. His brethren are those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified clearly have a fallen nature. So did Jesus. He was born with a fallen nature, sanctified as we are. Mm, okay. Because it goes both ways. That's good. Christ shares our fallen nature. Exactly. We become partakers of the, of the divine nature. That's very good. So, <clears throat> those points that I just talked about, Jesus in Philippians 2 was made a servant. He, how was he made a servant? By being obedient unto death. And the, the point of us being planted together in the likeness of his death. How did Christ die? As a corn of wheat falling under the ground. But then he brings forth much fruit. The fruit that he brings forth are those who are planted together in the likeness of his death, who are raised up to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life is walking the life of Christ. Because we've been planted in the likeness of his death, and we are in the likeness of his resurrection, so to speak. That's verse 5. And then it goes on that the body of sin is destroyed, our old man is crucified with Christ. And verse 7 says, He that is dead is freed from sin. And the marginal reading in the King James for freed from sin is justified. So he that is dead is justified, which therefore means in order to be justified, the old man must be crucified. Pretty straightforward. And when the old man is crucified, that means that you're walking in newness of life, which means you're living the life of Christ. So in order to be justified, that means you're living the life of Christ. Which then, going back to Romans 3, that's why Paul says God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Because you really are justified. You're living the life of Christ. And so God, who cannot lie, cannot say this person is justified if they're not dead to sin. Because that would make him a liar. And God doesn't lie. It is impossible for God to lie. So, and we talk, I'm just summarizing some of the things we talked about last time. Verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, just as death has no more dominion over Christ, he died once and that's it. He doesn't come back to Calvary and keep dying. Sin has no more dominion over us when we are dead to sin, when we are justified by faith. And what Paul is saying here is, is that when you are dead to sin, you don't sin. Because sin doesn't have dominion over you. So, and Paul, of course, says, I die daily. So that death of the old man is a daily process, which is why sanctification is the work of a lifetime. There's a difference between the fallen nature and the carnal nature. Um, we can talk about that. <clears throat> that would be uh, a long discussion. But we're actually going to get into that in Romans 7 in our next period. So save, hold that thought. Okay, <clears throat> so, since shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. 
What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. So again, the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 15, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. And being under grace is clearly defined in Romans 5.21 when it says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So when grace reigns, it's the righteousness of Christ reigning in our lives, which is justification by faith. So that's a brief summary of what we did last time, and it sets the stage then for talking about what it means to be a servant of God. Verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So now here's what Paul makes clear. You're going to be a servant to someone. You're either going to be a servant to sin, or you're going to be a servant to to God. And you can see he uses the term servants to God in verse 22. So in our lives, we have a choice to either yield to sin or to yield to righteousness, to yield to Christ. And that choice that we make determines whose servants we are. And <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if we're servants of Christ, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Satan makes his yoke look attractive, but it's actually um, a very awful yoke of bondage. Um, the yoke of sin which brings forth death. Verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. The marginal reading for which was delivered you could read, whereto ye were delivered. So the doctrine that ye were, whereto ye were delivered. Verse 18, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now again, have we seen the concept of being made free from sin in Romans chapter 6. It's verse 7. Verse 7 says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. And again, the marginal reading for freed from sin is justified. So he that is dead is justified. Verse 18, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Or it could read, Being then justified, ye became the servants of righteousness. And the, the point that Paul is making here is, being made free from sin or being justified involves the old man being crucified and being put to death. When the old man of sin is put to death, then we are made free from sin, we are justified, and we become the servants of God. Now that's an important point. In order to be servants of righteousness or servants of God, we must be dead to sin. We must have 
been crucified with Christ. If we're not crucified with Christ, if we're not completely surrendered, we're not justified, and we aren't servants of God. We're actually servants of sin. And Romans 7 is going to talk about people who have a knowledge of God and yet continue to let the carnal man rule their lives. So then, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Or being justified, ye became the servants of righteousness. Or being dead to sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. So the only way to be a servant of righteousness is to be dead to sin. We've made that point. Yes? There's a text that might uh, tell Romans 7. Okay. And that's Romans Which chapter? Uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And it's verse 15 and verse 16. It says, it's a corollary text of Romans 6 7. It says, mm-hmm. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Exactly. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mm-hmm. So, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, um, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, and Romans 6, 7 says, for he that is dead is freed from, from sin. Yeah. So, and when it says to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Romans 5, 21 again says that the grace of God is the righteousness of Christ reigning in our lives. So, <clears throat> verse 19, Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. So this is interesting. He says, you know, when you let the flesh or your fallen nature run your life, you yielded your members as servants to sin, to iniquity, to uncleanness. But now, yield your members servants to righteousness and to holiness. So instead of yielding to sin, we yield to holiness. The only way we yield to holiness is by being dead to sin. If you're still alive to sin, if the old man is still alive, every time iniquity passes by, you're going to want to yield to it. But if you're surrendered to God, and if the old man is dead, instead of yielding to that iniquity, you yield to righteousness. Verse 24, when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit... Had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So when you're the servant of sin, you're free from righteousness, and the fruit of being a servant of sin is death. And we're going to come back to that. Verse 22, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
Now, this is beautiful. This is powerful. Remember, up until the first three chapters, we're talking about the wrath of God and the judgment being poured out upon those who have disobeyed God. And if they don't know about God, or they, it, Romans 1 says that you're without excuse because God has plainly revealed himself through unspoken things, through the creation of the world. So those who reject God, they're going to receive his wrath. And then chapter 2, those who know about God but are breaking his law anyway, they're going to receive his wrath. And by the time we get to chapter 3, all the world is guilty before God in the judgment. And it's just like, wow, we're just in a really bad state. But then the concept of the righteousness of God comes in, being cleared in the judgment, and we see how it's possible to be cleared in the judgment, and it's by having the old man being crucified or put to death so that we can be justified and have the righteousness of Christ. When we have the righteousness of Christ, when we are justified, we are made free from sin, we become servants to God, here in verse 22, and the end is everlasting life. So instead of facing eternal death in the judgment, God is offering us everlasting life. Now, what kind of a deal is that? I mean, we should be thankful, happy people all the time because of this. That's right. I said, oh, how's it going? Oh, you know. <sighs> yeah, it's just been a rough week. And not just put down trials. But if you really think about it, if we have justification by faith, we have everlasting life. And that should put into perspective some of the trials that we go through here on this earth. And again, in Romans 5, we see that the trials that come our way are given to us to refine our characters, to perfect us, exactly. So now, getting, breaking down verse 22 a little more, but now being made free from sin... And become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. First phrase here, being made free from sin. I keep mentioning this point because it's so important to understand righteousness by faith. Where have we seen being made free from sin in this chapter? We saw it in verse 18 and we saw it in verse 7. And verse 7, of course, is the key verse how, what is the condition of being free from sin? Being dead. And verse 6 of Romans 6, the similar word is crucified, and it's the old man is crucified with Christ. So in order to be dead, we must be crucified with Christ. When we are dead, we are freed from sin. And again, that marginal reading for freed from sin is justified. So when you are dead, when you are crucified with Christ, you are justified. And in verse 22, being made free from sin, or being justified, or being dead to sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. <clears throat> you know, what we need in this world are people who are servants to God. 100%. There's too many people who think that they can be servants to God and still let the old man be alive. And we're going to talk about that in Romans 7. But if we had more people who were servants to God, 
We'd have more people who are free from sin. We'd have more people who are dead to sin. We, are, we would have more people who are justified. And we would have more people who had been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death and are now living Christ's life here on this earth. And that's what this world needs. What this world doesn't need is a bunch of Christians who say they are Christians, but they live like the world. And they're really servants to sin. That's not what this world needs. There's already plenty of those people out in the world. And for us to say, let's just go out there and um, become like them to get them to join us, that we're playing right into the devil's game of being servants to sin. And Paul is clearly teaching here in Romans 6 that the servants to God are going to be justified, made free from sin. They're dead to sin. They're crucified with Christ. They've been planted together in the likeness of his death. And they're raised to walk in newness of life, the life of Christ here on this earth. Because sin has no more dominion over the servants of God. So... Being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. What's the end? Everlasting life. And then when you get to verse 23, it helps us to understand this famously quoted passage from Romans 6 that is so often quoted, and that's good, but the first 22 verses are rarely talked about. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, if you're committing sin, you're actually paying wages. And if you're paying wages to something, it it gives the idea that you're the servant to that. Because, you see, you're either a servant to God or you're either a servant to sin. And the wages of sin is death. Now, what kind of a deal is that? You're going to be my servant, you pay me money, and what I give you in return is death. I mean, what kind of a deal is that? Christ is offering us everlasting life, and Satan through sin is offering us death, and yet most of the world thinks that death is a better deal than everlasting life. What's going on here? People don't realize the gift of God. Verse 23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm convinced that if people really knew Jesus Christ, we would have more servants of God. You know, Ellen White tells us we should spend a thoughtful hour contemplating the closing scenes of Christ's life. Well, think about what happens when you spend that thoughtful hour. You see Jesus in Pilate's courtroom, and you see that when he's reviled, reviled, he reviles not again. That's 1 Peter 2. When he suffers, he threatens not, but he commits to him that judgeth righteously. And there was no guile found in his mouth. That's Jesus just before he dies. Then we see Jesus crucified on the cross. We also see him in Gethsemane saying, Father, not my will, but thine be done. If we spent more time contemplating those things, and we saw that Jesus was obedient unto death, how he became a servant as a human being, was obedient unto death, and we saw in Jesus his matchless charms, people wouldn't be asking questions like, you know, is it a salvational issue if I 
dress like the world and still claim to be a Christian? You know, what's the issue there? Are you really dead to sin and are you really a servant to God? When you're a servant to God, you give your life 100% to the person that you're serving. It's not 75% your way, God, and 25% my way. It's 100% God's way and 0% the old man's way. And some people say, oh, that's legalism. Not if it's done out of love for what God has done to us. When we serve God with 100% submission, saying, I'm going to give all of my life to Jesus Christ because of what he's done for me, these questions of, is this a salvational issue? Is this a salvational issue? Is it wrong to do this? What's wrong with that? Well, if we're dead to sin, we wouldn't want to do those things anyway. And I get tired of people saying, what's the minimum I can do and get into heaven? When we're servants to God, it should be, how much can I do for the Lord because I love him so much? And there's a huge difference. And the last thing that I want to point out is that Romans 6 very clearly is teaching that in order to be justified, we must be dead to sin. And when we are dead to sin, we do not continue in sin because sin has no more dominion over us. And when, is, when that is the case, we are servants to God. Now, what's interesting to me is that in Revelation 7, the 144,000 are called the servants of God. And Revelation 7 talks about how the angels are holding back the four winds until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are described as the first fruits to God and to the land. Now, do you remember that concept about being planted together in the likeness of his death? And in John, Jesus was the corn of wheat who fell on the ground. And because he died, he brings forth much fruit. Guess who are the first fruits? The 144,000. 144,000 are servants of God. What does that mean about the 144,000? That means they have been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death. That means that they've walked in newness of life, the life of Christ. That means that they are dead to sin, that sin has no more dominion over them. And when you see the characteristics of the 144,000 in Revelation 14, it says that they are without fault before the throne of God and there's no guile in their mouth. Interestingly, 1 Peter 2, same characteristics as Jesus Christ. So here is an interesting thought. Remember how... Well, boy, there's a couple of things couple of different pathways I want to go right now. So there's two things I want to say. The first of all is um, justification by faith linked to the third angel's message and the concept of the servants of God with respect to the 144,000. And they go together. Romans chapter 6 clearly teaches the concept of justification by faith being dead to sin. Romans Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 are too clear to be misunderstood. When you understand in verse 7 that when you are dead, you are freed from sin, which means to be justified. And the verse before that means that we're crucified with Christ. 
And we've talked in our class before from Galatians 2, 16 and 20, that we're justified by the faith of Jesus Christ and that we're, when we're crucified with Christ, we live by the faith of Jesus Christ. Christ lives in us. And that the second advent movement was raised up for the ministry of God to be finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is justification by faith. The second advent movement in Revelation 10, I guess I'm going kind of fast here, but the second advent movement in Revelation 10 was raised up for the mystery of God to be finished. The mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20, when Christ lives in you, you exercise the faith of Jesus Christ. And Galatians 2.16, when you're justified, you're justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. And to be justified, you have to be dead to sin. So anyway, all those things go together. And Revelation 14.12 says that God's last day people keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, which means they're justified by faith. So, <clears throat> here we have a description. Romans chapter 6, then, is a description of God's last day people. Amen. God's last day people will be servants to God, dead to sin, justified by faith, servants to God, made free from sin with fruits unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7, however, says that the four winds are being held until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. So what does that say about the Seventh-day Adventist movement right now? That says that the Seventh-day Adventist movement is not justified by faith, collectively speaking. That we are not dead to sin. That we are still servants to sin, not servants to God. Because if we were dead to sin, we would be sealed in our foreheads and we'd be going to heaven right now. Revelation 7, when the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads, Jesus is going to come. Romans 6 says, when you're a servant to God, you're dead to sin. But guess what the, the experience of Seventh-day Adventism is? We're going to study this next week. It's Romans 7. The good that I would, that I do not. That I would not, that's what I do. O wretched man that I am. And the same Greek word in Revelation 3, Jesus says you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And if you're naked, it clearly means you're not covered with the righteousness of Christ, which clearly means you're not justified by faith. So my last point here, and, and then we'll move to our prayer request time, is this. In order for Jesus to come, we need to have the experience of Romans 6. To be dead to sin, sin having no more dominion over us, to be crucified with Christ, and to be justified by faith. So that's my challenge to, to each one of us here tonight. Let's be servants of God. Let's strive to be part of the 144,000 who are dead to sin, servants to God, who have fruits unto holiness and the end of everlasting life. And again, what kind of a deal is that? Christ gives us everlasting life, and the wages of sin gives us death. Which side do you want to be on? The, the choice is clear.